Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, I'm David Marley, and welcome to the Independence Coronavirus Podcast. This series is about getting behind the headlines and examining the issues affecting our lives as we navigate our way through the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we are talking about alcohol. After months of being locked away in our homes, the pubs will reopen this weekend, prompting both celebration from people looking forward to a pint and a taste of normal life, but also concern from police that things could spiral out of control. As bars open again, now seems a good time to ask what three months of lockdown has done to our relationship with booze. Has being cooped up led us to drink more? Have we developed new habits that will be hard to shift? And is relying on a drink to help us cope with the anxieties of coronavirus really a problem? Today, I'm delighted to be talking to Ian Hamilton, Associate Professor of Addiction at the University of York and a regular columnist at The Independent, writing about alcohol and drugs policy and their impact. Hi, Ian. Thank you very much for being here. Do you think you can start by telling us about what we know about what has happened to our drinking patterns since coronavirus struck? Well, we're getting more and more of an insight into what we've all been doing with alcohol um, as each week goes by. And, and probably the most interesting data that's come out is looking at retail sales. Um, because what that does is that gives us a, a comparison that we can make you know, between how much alcohol is sold during COVID and the same period last year. Um, and essentially what that shows is that we are buying more alcohol. Um, so retail sales have gone up. Now, to some extent, you would expect retail sales to go up because, of course, as you said in your intro, pubs have been closed for a while. So you would expect more people to be buying uh, what's known as off-license um, alcohol, you know, from supermarkets, uh, off-licenses or online. Um, but it seems the amount that we've been buying, uh, you know, outstrips what we would have um, consumed in restaurants or pubs. So we've definitely, as a as a group, as a population in the UK, been drinking more. And do we know that that happened straight away? As soon as it went, we went into lockdown. People, when they were stockpiling toilet paper and everything else, were they was was part of that part of that shopping list? Yeah, it seems to have been um, part of the shopping list, you know, along with the past and toilet roll. So um, people clearly were cleverer than I was in anticipating any of those, um, needing any of those, because I certainly didn't stockpile alcohol. Um, and no one I knew did either. So it was quite interesting to see that. And that was very early on. So that was, um, I think, um, data that came out at the end of March, beginning of April, which, of course, was only a couple of weeks um, into lockdown. Um, and straight away there was a spike. I mean, bizarrely, I, I don't think we should read anything into it, but bizarrely, rum sales were up 70% uh, 
Um, I'm not quite sure why people gravitated towards rum, but um, more seriously, all sales of um, you know beer, spirits, uh, wine were up generally. And and what do we know about who's buying it? Is do we know whether it's people who have, were social drinkers who were drinking more, or is it pro- people who already had an issue with alcohol who were kind of turning to it in, in, in an increasing increasing way? Well, we we can't be a hundred percent sure. So again, what we've got to rely on is kind of proxy data. So um, a couple of organisations, Alcohol Change UK, um, and um, another organisation, really the Portman Group, which works on behalf of the alcohol industry, have have done uh, surveys of people. So these are samples of roughly about two thousand people, the same as you would find in a political survey um, that we see in the news. And both those surveys have found the same thing. So I, I would tend to um, view them as reasonably representative of what's happened. And that is we have two very distinct groups uh, when it comes to drinking. The, the, the vast majority, so something like three quarters of people in these surveys say that they're drinking about the same, less or are abstaining since COVID began. But then we have a, another smaller group who were already drinking quite a bit before COVID and have actually increased their drinking uh, since, you know, lockdown and the virus has um, spread through the population. So, yeah, two very clear groups, one who I think probably had the drinking under control prior to COVID and have continued to drink at very low levels. And the other group who are more of a concern, who were drinking at very hazardous levels, i.e. 30 units of alcohol plus a week, uh, bearing in mind the government advice is 14 units a week. So they were drinking at least double uh, what the government advises a week. And they've added to that during COVID. And I'm sure everyone is closely monitoring their, their unit intake. But just just, just to remind people, what it, what constitutes a unit? Yeah, no, it's a good um, thing to remind people about because it's such an abstract term and we know that people um, get confused by it. So a unit is a small glass of wine um, with a kind of uh, alcohol by volume, ABV of about 11 or 12%. And when I say a small glass of wine, I mean 125 millilitres. So not the big glasses that you sometimes get served in pubs and restaurants, um, or half a pint of um, reasonably strong beer. Um, So that's kind of what a unit would be. So 30 units being then 15, kind of 15 pints a week, which, yeah. if you're going to the pub a couple of times a week, seems like you know two quite heavy nights in the pub if you're having seven or eight pints twice a week. But yeah, if you're exactly. if you're at home, kind of drinking kind of more steadily on a daily basis, it would be actually quite easy to get to that kind of relatively easy to get to that kind of dangerous level. It would, and and sorry, just to go back to your point about you know drinking that two days a week. Of course, that's not the government advice. The government advice is that that should be spread out over five days in every seven-day week. So you should have two days abstinent or dry, um, and those 15 units should be spread out over five days rather than scored up for the weekend and then you know, um, consume them all in a day or two. So that's the other um, fact or a bit of advice with uh, alcohol. But in terms of home drinking, yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the perhaps advantages there might be to... Uh, pubs and restaurants opening up is that of course we don't um, pour our own measures when we're in the pub and restaurant Uh, whereas when we're at home we pour our own measures and 
whether we deliberately pull larger measures or it's just more difficult to um, kind of discern how much or assess how much you're pouring into a glass, whether it's wine or a spirit. Um, I'm not sure. I guess some people will know they're having a larger measure, but others just won't know. You know, we don't sit there with, um, you know, our um, small measures of gin and pour them into a glass. We just kind of pour straight out the bottle. Um, a bit similar to sometimes when you go uh, to Europe, you know, on holiday and they just they don't use measures as such. They just pour a, um, a spirit into a glass. So we know that people drink more when they're at home. So, so we know that for the majority of people, do you say three? So three quarters of people yeah. not drinking more, but that still yeah. leaves a big, big proportion of the drinking population who perhaps you know wouldn't consider themselves to necessarily you know be an alcoholic or have a kind of serious dependency issue, but drinking kind of more heavily, quite a, quite a large mm. proportion of people, and they yeah. are and they've been drinking more heavily um, over the past kind of few months. Do we yeah. know? Do we do we do we know any of the reasons why they're turning to, to alcohol? Well, I think the, the, it probably follows the same reason anyone would, would drink a little bit more prior to COVID. And that is, we, we know there are a lot of people who, uh, as you say, rightly, don't view themselves as alcoholic, even though they may have developed a physical and psychological dependence on alcohol. But, but that dependence, um, you know, is very slow to happen. It's not like cocaine or uh, heroin, you know, alcohol dependence takes years to develop. It doesn't happen in a, a short period of time. And we think what some of lies behind some of the dependence building up is trying to mitigate feelings of anxiety or other mental health issues such as depression, which are untreated. So COVID, of course, you know, provides that 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 stimulus of um, anxiety, whether it's anxiety about the virus or about the economics, uh, you know, the problems people will be facing with the finances, with future employment perhaps with relationships as well, you know, being cooped up with people, um, losing your routine, all of these play in, not for everyone, but for some people, can make them that bit more anxious. And of course, alcohol mitigates in the short term feelings of anxiety and depression very well. It's very good at doing that. It makes you feel better. Um, but as I say, unfortunately, that's at the price of then, you know, entering a cause and effect type relationship where you feel anxious, you drink, um, you don't feel so good the next day and you might carry on drinking, etc., etc. So it becomes a, a bit of a vicious circle, particularly if you have a clinical problem. You know, we all feel from time to time a bit stressed or a bit fed up, but we're not clinically depressed or anxious. But if you have uh, the symptoms of clinical anxiety and depression, it's clearly better to have that treated than to be trying to treat it yourself with uh, a chemical like alcohol. And you you mentioned um, you know perhaps anxiety over over money or jobs or those kinds of issues. Obviously, there's been a been a lot you know a lot of people furloughed and otherwise yeah. economically. But is there a, is there is there a, um, a kind of social divide in in who's in who's turning through more at this time? I think there is class information on class and drugs generally, including alcohol, is quite hard to get hold of. We we know more about the poorer people in society because they're more visible. And then we do the richer ones. You know, the, one of the benefits of being rich is you can be quite hidden and um, anonymous um, in society if, if you choose to be, and most do. So what I mean by that is, you know, obviously um, public treatment systems through the NHS uh, do provide some support and care for people who develop problems with alcohol. And we can count the number of people who enter those services. 
but um, it's very difficult um, because it's hidden and it's guarded by private companies, those that offer um, high-end uh, alcohol treatment um, because they view their clients uh, as being uh, as regarding confidential confidentiality as being really important. Um, so they don't they don't disclose how many people they treat, um, who they're treating, even uh, basic demographics like age and gender. So I think alcohol does. It, it, alcohol is like cocaine. Both drugs seem to affect every strata of society in terms of um, people developing problems with dependency. The difference is how you deal with that and can you, what well, the jargon for it is, are you a functional alcoholic or are you dysfunctional? So functional just means can you carry on doing the jobs that you and I are doing while having a drinking problem? And the chances are we probably could um, to you know, for some time before things um, obviously, you know, might get out of hand. If I stopped turning up for work, I was smelling of alcohol. But of course, working remotely like this, I can't tell if you've had a drink, David, and you can't tell if I've had a drink. The only thing I could um, judge it by is whether I thought your speech was a bit slurred or whatever. So it may seem a, a trivial example, but I think people can um, mask a, and, and hide a problem with um, alcohol far more easily if, if you have money and you have resources than if you're skinned um, and don't have resources. I think the, the working from home um, aspect of that is, is fascinating because obviously we're aware that the, you know, the pubs aren't, aren't open and perhaps people are drinking at home or whatever, but the, the way in which you can mask that, as you say, is very interesting. Um, mm. You said that it takes um, a while, it can take some time to develop um, dependency on alcohol so if we're coming out of lockdown and this kind of journey kind of continues if we don't go get locked down again what will the longer term impact of these trends of increased drinking among this group be well have they had enough time to develop um, new bad habits and patterns of behavior that will stay with them or, or do you do you think that they go away when lockdown goes away yes yeah, it's, it's a good point so it, it's worth um, tipping it around the other way because the best example we've got of this is um, campaigns like Dry January that many people will be familiar with, and of course that's for a month. So the you know that it's partly led by the science. Um, you know there's good evidence to show that if you can change a habit, i.e. drinking even in small amounts, even if you only drink um, within the government guidelines of 14 units a week, if you can stop doing that for a month, there's a good chance you can continue that behaviour. So given that COVID has been going, what, over three months now? Um, or we've certainly been in lockdown for, for a good three months. Yeah. Um, if, if people have upped their drinking for three months, I would suggest that's something that perhaps is going to be a lot trickier to get back under control um, or for them to address uh, than if it had only lasted a month um, or even, you know, a shorter period. So I, I think... We, we already had problems in this country with alcohol prior to COVID. You know, it's the best kept secret, really, um, in terms of admissions to hospital uh, for alcohol-related problems. You know, we, we lead Europe in uh, um, health problems with alcohol, unfortunately. Um, and in part, that's we'll probably come on to this in a minute, that's partly through policy, partly through pricing and a range of other things. But, yeah, we, we're... We, we didn't start in a good place prior to this, David, in terms of um, the, the number of people who had a problem. And I think 
unfortunately, we're only going to see that amplified with COVID. Um, and that will play out over the next, you know, five, ten years, I suspect. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And obviously there have been cuts to, to various kind of addiction services and, and, and uh, yeah. public health um, services. So that will all play into that becoming a bigger problem over time, I presume. It, it will. I mean, I, I I have mixed views about this. I, I think, you know, it's it's all too easy to say we need more resources for addiction treatment and alcohol in particular. And, of course, I think, you know, that would be very welcome. But I think there's a lot of services and support um, uh, charities and others could do to kind of really reform the way that they work. At the moment in this country, we seem to have this um, philosophy within drug and alcohol treatment that what happens is we wait until people um, say they need help or they hit rock bottom, uh, would be the expression, before we intervene. Now, we don't do that with cancer. We don't do that with diabetes. We don't do it with a range of other um, problems like cardiac disease and so on. But somehow we seem to think that it's okay to do that with drug and alcohol problems. What I'd prefer to see is um, that the best parallel is with mental health. Over the last two decades, mental health treatment has changed radically. So when I became a mental health nurse uh, nearly 30 years ago, we, we relied on people coming to appointments, a bit like drug and alcohol treatment do now. And what's changed is mental health treatment has reformed itself, and now we offer things like assertive outreach. So we go and find people who we know are in the early stages of developing serious problems like uh, schizophrenia, uh, bipolar depression, etc. And I think we should do the same for alcohol and drug use. We should be intervening far earlier than waiting for people to get to the lowest point in their life when you know, the the problems they have with alcohol or with drugs has ravaged them, ravaged their families and often the communities they live in as well. So you're talk- obviously we're touching on um, on government policy there about how those mm. problems are addressed. Um, do you, I mean, not obviously the government has had a lot on its hands over the last few months dealing with dealing with the pandemic, but they haven't really said anything much of, there have been a few words of caution about alcohol during that period. But a lot of clamour to get the pubs back open, even before there's a kind of concrete plan to get schools open for, for all children. 
Um, what kind of messaging have they been giving, and is, it, is that is that also problematic? Well, I think alcohol policy is a bit like tobacco smoke. Uh, tobacco policy was a few years ago. You know, it was um, politicians of any colour were reluctant to really do what they they knew they had to do with tobacco. You know, I think the evidence around the harm that tobacco was causing in the population had been clear for decades before. Um, it was Tony Blair in the Labour government who, um, you know, took the really courageous decision to ban it in public places, and that was probably made one of the most significant impacts on public health we've seen in in two or three decades. So, but in alcohol, we, we're at the same stage where I think politicians, again of any colour, I'm not being party political about this. I think a Labour government as well as a a conservative one feel very um, nervous about interfering with the tradition we have in this country of consuming alcohol and it became apparent really right from the beginning of covid what the approach was going to be we it was um i think within the, uh, even before lockdown it was made clear that off licenses would be put in the same category as pharmacies they'd be deemed essential services it was incredible because, though, wasn't it, when that happened because they, they were off the list to begin with and then after yeah. an outcry then they very quickly found themselves back on the list they, they did. And, you know, some of that would have been down to, I think, lobbying by the industry. And fair enough. You know, that's that's what they uh, employ those lobbyists to do in the same way we have lobbyists in the fishing industry or, you know, advocating at the moment for airlines. So they're just doing their job. The, the pro- but I think they were pushing on a fairly open door with that one. You know, I think we do have a government that's fairly libertarian in its approach. Um, and I understand that. But I think you can be libertarian and offer you know, um, the advice and the science. You know, I think the government's been very keen when it comes to the pandemic to, you know, push the science out in front and say how they're going to follow it, but on the same token have said absolutely nothing about alcohol. And if if people have been using alcohol to cope with COVID, then that deserves a little bit of a mention, I think, um, and just to remind people of um, some of the hazards. Not for everyone, the vast majority of people I think I probably should have said this at the beginning, David, but the vast majority of people won't develop a problem with alcohol. They'll um, enjoy the odd drink and it'll enhance their lives. It won't cause them any problems. But there is a rump. There is a small proportion in the population who undoubtedly do have a problem and they need intervention. They need support. And unfortunately, we've, we, the alcohol industry has been so effective in lobbying for their own cause that public health on this doesn't really get an input. And you, is it right that some countries have taken a much more, during, during coronavirus, have taken a much more proactive stance? I think you mentioned to me before that South Africa has actually yeah. banned alcohol sales. Is that right? It has. You know, they, they've been um, very assertive. Um, I think it's caused its own problems, and it just shows how no public health measure is problem free so of course the obvious thing when you start banning alcohol in a country uh, particularly one like south africa or you know indeed it could be a country in europe i just mean the size of south africa is that you um open up all sorts of possibilities for the black market um so that creates its own dangers so you you think that you solved one problem as a government by uh, rem- trying to remove alcohol from the population. And um, the, the main reason they did that wasn't to protect um, individual health. It was to reduce the pressure on hospitals and accident and emergency. So 
again, interesting that when, if we think back to the beginning of COVID in the UK and the push there was, you know, you think of things like the Nightingale Hospital, um, you know, the drafting in of staff, would that not have been an ideal time to have talked about alcohol? I don't mean ban alcohol, just talked about alcohol to try and reduce the pressure on our NHS at that time, but none of that was mentioned. Um, so I, I think we have a government who's got the ear of, or, or rather an industry that's got the ear of the government. Um, alcohol has, um, relative to income, never been cheaper than it than it's ever been. Um, and it's more widely available. You can get alcohol, you know, bizarrely. You're not allowed to drink and drive, but you can drive into a petrol station and buy wine. <laughs> yeah. Um, if we look at what um, the comparison between what's happened to alcohol during coronavirus and the legal drug market, what comparison mm. do you draw there? Have people um, in also increased their use of illegal drugs? Well, it almost fits with what we're saying with South Africa and the, the black market, which, of course, then becomes the illicit market in alcohol. It, the, the illicit drug market, as each month has gone on, has proved itself to be more resilient than our um, legitimate economy. The, the, you know, internationally, what's happened is we've seen um, some very clever initiatives go on. So in the past, uh, when I say in the past, I mean prior to COVID, uh, it's not that far in the past, is it? But um you know, last year, we, what we would see is um, a, a large number of small, um, if you like, packages of drugs being moved around via uh, airlines mainly, you know, people, drug mules or whatever. Um, occasionally with, you know, ships, um, the speedboats, all the kind of James Bond type style stuff going on. But in the main, it was through air travel. That's become... Um, obviously riskier and also impossible in, in certain weeks as air travel has been closed down. Mm. So what, what the cartels have done is moved um, fewer uh, consignments of drugs but in far bigger quantities. So they've, they've upped the risk of moving drugs around. What that's meant is we've seen seizures in Europe, South America and um, America go up. But we think seizures have only gone up in proportion to the amount of drugs that have successfully got through. So on the supply side, there's been no problems on the supply side. Um, what we have seen is some speculative, and certainly in the UK and certain parts of the UK, speculative price increases, which don't seem to be based on supply problems. Um, it is just people kind of um, being opportunistic, small-time dealers being opportunistic, in raising prices of drugs like heroin and cocaine, um, so if if you um, if you do use drugs, you you'll know that actually your supply has been um, uninterrupted. Prices have been pretty stable. There has been some shifts in drug use, so people have moved away, unsurprisingly, from party drugs like MDMA or ecstasy to um, so they've moved away really from stimulants uh, like MDMA or amphetamine to uh, sedative drugs like uh, cannabis and um, benzodiazepines, so diazepam in particular. And as we look towards the weekend, how, how do you feel? Are you kind of filled with with a slight sense of foreboding or do you think that if it could be managed correctly, reopening the pubs will actually be a positive way of kind of regulating people's um, alcohol intake, perhaps not on this Saturday? <laughs> No, exactly. That would be the message to give, David, wouldn't it? Don't, <laughs> don't have all your units this Saturday. But 
I think in the main, it's going to be something that's good. You know, it's as we know, the pub isn't just about consuming alcohol. It's that sense of community, belonging. Um, and when people have been isolated for so long, um, it doesn't fill me with any great anxiety. I, I think, um, as I said earlier on, I think what people might do is actually potentially drink a little less, you know, because they'll, they will they can only buy measured uh, spirits or, or beers or, you know, they're not pouring their own when they go to the pub. Um, or to a restaurant so in, in that sense it can only be good but of course um, in the background you know we won't have removed the problems we went into COVID with or that have actually been amplified as far as alcohol is concerned for that smaller proportion of the population um, and I suppose I'm well I'm, I'm not anxious about pubs opening I am anxious about the wider economy and the effect that's going to have on our public services including um, alcohol treatment and support as well. Ian, thank you for that. That's absolutely um, fascinating. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you're a new listener, uh, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen. If you have suggestions for things you'd like us to discuss, please get in touch on email at the coronavirus podcast at independent.co.uk, or you can use the hashtag Indie Coronavirus Podcast, I N D Y Coronavirus Podcast and we'll see your post. You can read about um, all the unfolding news to do with COVID-19 on our website, independent.co.uk, and in our downloadable daily edition app. And there's also an email newsletter you can sign up to if you want the latest news and developments delivered to your inbox. Thank you so much again for listening, and please join us again next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.